Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America, by Christian Williams. This is the first of two parts of Chapter 8, entitled Riot Police or Police Riots. Despite the efforts of the intelligence agencies, opposition movements continue to arise, occasionally developing to the point of unrest. Naturally, when uprisings occur, the authorities must put them down. Governments necessarily have a stake in controlling political protest, especially when it becomes forceful enough to disrupt the usual course of things, that is, when it becomes an effective threat to the status quo. No one with an interest in retaining power can allow things to go so far as to actually jeopardize their ability to rule, but this presents a problem for the rules of an alleged democracy, with its, prom with its promises of civil rights, free speech, popular assembly, and the pretense that the people are actually in the driver's seat. Open repression may exacerbate a crisis and undercut the state's claim to legitimacy, while acquiescence may make the government seem weak and will surely carry with it unfavorable policy implications. There can be no question of whether to control political protest, but there is a clear question as to how this may best be accomplished. Seattle, 1999. Dance party, street fight, no protest zone. The 1999 Seattle demonstrations against the World Trade Organization WTO, precipitated a sharp controversy in the theory of crowd control, calling into question police strategies of the previous 25 years. On the morning of November 30, 1999, tens of thousands of people filled downtown Seattle in protest against the World Trade Organization. Protesters surrounded the venue for the WTO's ministerial conference, blocking the delegates' access to the meeting and shutting down a large portion of the city. The protests were overwhelmingly peaceful. Many took the form of dance parties in the street. On the demonstrators' side, the much-decried violence and rioting amounted to only a few broken windows and some tear gas thrown back in the direction of the police. For most of that day, the police were helpless to restore order. They stood in small groups, blocking random streets, accomplishing nothing. Occasionally, tear gas was used, and the police would advance a block, but that was all. For one day, the streets belonged to jubilant crowds. Shops were not open, cars could not pass, the WTO meeting was stalled at the outset. By nightfall, a curfew was in place, and the National Guard was on patrol. It was announced that no more demonstrations would be allowed in the area of the conference. Police chased a crowd from downtown to the nearby Capitol Hill neighborhood, attacking everyone in the street along the way. The residents of Capitol Hill fought back, and a pitched battle ensued. The fighting continued late into the night. On December 1, the streets belonged to the cops. Early that morning, the police arrested more than 600 people just outside the no-protest zone. Police were shown on national television indiscriminately firing tear gas, rubber bullets, and other less lethal munitions. Beatings were common. Not only protesters, but bystanders and reporters were attacked. Still, the demonstrations continued. On December 2, several hundred people surrounded the jail, demanding their comrades be released. A compromise was reached when the authorities allowed lawyers in to see the prisoners, the first legal access since the arrests began. In the end, the protesters won. The WTO meetings started late and ended in failure. No new trade agreements were reached. Most of those arrested were released, with charges dropped, and Norm Stamper, Seattle Chief, police, Chief of Police, resigned in disgrace. People, workers, students, environmentalists, human rights activists, stood together against the WTO, the city government, the police, the National Guard, and the corporate powers they all represent. The people won. Before the smoke had even cleared, authorities around the country were asking what had gone wrong and, more importantly, how they could prevent it from happening again. Assessing the police response, what not to do. 
Everyone agrees that the police action at the WTO was an unmitigated disaster. A city council committee charged with reviewing the events noted, quote, This city became the laboratory for how American cities will address mass protests. In many ways, it became a vivid demonstration of what not to do, unquote. From a civil rights perspective, the 1999 WTO ministerial was marked by a virtual prohibition on free speech, a plague of arbitrary arrests, and widespread police brutality. The ACLU described the situation this way, quote, Realizing it had lost control of the scene, the city then overreacted. It violated free speech rights in a large part of downtown. Under the direction of the Seattle Police Department, police from Seattle and nearby jurisdictions used chemical weapons on, police, on peaceful crowds and people walking by. Losing discipline, police officers committed individual acts of brutality. Protesters were improperly arrested and mistreated in custody. Unquote. The city council's description of the events bears the standard characteristics of a police riot. Quote, Our inquiry found troubling examples of seemingly gratuitous assaults on citizens, including use of less lethal weapons like tear gas, pepper gas, rubber bullets, and beanbag guns, by officers who seemed motivated more by anger or fear than professional law enforcement. Unquote. And police commanders admit that they lost control not only of the streets, but of their troops as well. Quote, an essential element for the successful execution of any plan is the ability to control operations once officers are deployed. Unfortunately, in several respects, the command and control arrangements for WTO broke down early in the operation. Unquote. Nevertheless, from the law and order side, the protests represented a vast sea of lawlessness, complete with attacks against police and property. The Seattle De Police Department After Action Report describes the protests from the police perspective. Quote, Numerous acts of property damage, looting, and assaults on police were committed. Officers were pelted with sticks, bottles, traffic cones, empty chemical irritant can canisters, and other debris. Some protesters used their own chemical irritants against police, and a large fire was set in the intersection of 4th and Pike. Unquote. What's remarkable is not so much the dispute between the police and civil rights advocates, not to mention the protesters, but the level of conflict between the city council and the police. Some of this was surely opportunistic posturing, a typical political game with politicians scrambling to cover their asses, point accusing fingers, and associate themselves with the winners. But the dispute also represents a sharp split between the perspective of the city council as presented in its accountability committee report, and that of police, argued mostly by proxy in a report prepared by an independent consulting firm, R.M. McCarthy and Associates. Not only are their analyses in conflict, in places even the facts they cite are at odds, but their suggested remedies are in direct opposition. Funded by the mayor's office, the McCarthy and Associates report was written primarily by three retired law enforcement officers from New York and Los Angeles. They describe every step of the SPD's WTO operation and urge a more forceful response when dealing with future civil disobedience. They recommend establishing the siege-like atmosphere of December 1 well before any demonstrations begin, arguing that, quote, Had a restrictive safety zone been established, protest areas designated outside of the zone and additional personnel from other agencies been planned for and deployed in preemptive manner on November 26, the results would likely have been different, unquote. The report also suggests that the police response didn't go far enough in the suppression of civil rights. The review team believes the decision to allow any previously scheduled marches or demonstrations to proceed after violence had erupted was unwise. Unquote. Furthermore, it recommends amending police policy by removing instructions that crowds be moved or dispersed peacefully, and adding explicit orders to make as many arrests as possible. 
Luckily, elected officials are likely to balk at such draconian measures. Describing the McCarthy report as a, quote, crude and unsatisfying, unquote, document, the City Council's review committee reached almost entirely opposing conclusions. Rather than pressing for a more forceful response, the City Council's committee suggested that, in many cases, the police would have done better to have done nothing at all. Quote, Members of the public, including demonstrators, were victims of ill-conceived and sometimes pointless police actions to clear the streets. Unquote. Aside from its brutality, such an approach is often self-defeating. For example, quote, the unintended consequence of police actions on Capitol Hill was to bring sleepy residents out of their homes and mobilize them as resistors, unquote. Despite the objections to the McCarthy report, it is recommended, its recommended tactics are by now familiar in the setting of any large anti-globalization event. We've seen this pattern repeated time and again in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and Los Angeles, as well as Prague, Quebec City, Gothenburg, and Genoa, and with variations in more recent anti-war protests. Early strategies. There's more at stake in this debate than the blame for the WTO debacle. Each of these reports represents one side in an ongoing dispute over the principles of crowd control. Spanning slightly more than a hundred years, this controversy has been shaped by a series of similar crises, instances in which police orthodoxy proved disastrous. Prior to the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, civil disturbances were essentially handled like any other military engagement, with the possible exception that crowds would be ordered to disperse before police or militia charged with clubs or opened fire. During the draft riots of 1863, for example, New York Police Commissioner Thomas Acton ordered those under his command to take no prisoners. George Walling, the commander of the 12th Precinct, was even more specific in his instructions. Quote, Kill every man who has a club. Unquote. I will term this strategy maximum force. Such an approach may have had a certain efficacy against localized revolts, unplanned riots, or drunken mobs, but it met with greater difficulty in 1877 when more than 100,000 railroad workers, engaged by cuts to their already meager wages, went on strike and prevented the companies from moving their freight. The turmoil was too vast for local police to control, and the militia proved unreliable. Quote, in Pittsburgh, the city where strike-related violence climaxed, militia displayed opposite extremes of indiscipline, fraternization, and panic, unquote. The commander of the Pittsburgh militia later testified, quote, Meeting on the field of battle, you go there to kill. But here you had men with fathers and mothers and brothers and relatives mingled in the crowd of rioters. The sympathy was with the strikers. We all felt that these men were not receiving enough wages, unquote. The Philadelphia militia, which was also sent to Pittsburgh, displayed no such sympathy. The New York Times reported that they, quote, fired indiscriminately into the crowd, among whom were many women and children, unquote. Rather than fleeing, the crowd was enraged. The militia was forced to retreat. Likewise, in reading, when troops killed 11 strikers, the general population only grew more furious. Strike supporters looted freight, tore up tracks, and armed themselves with rifles from the militia's own armory. When reinforcements arrived, they sided with the crowds and threatened their colleagues. Quote, if you fire at the mob, we'll fire at you. Unquote. These same problems arose in every city facing strikes. In Newark, Ohio, and Hornellsville, New York, militiamen openly fraternized with strikers, much to the dismay of their commanders. In Martinsburg, West Virginia, the commander of the Beverly Light Guards telegraphed the governor, worried by his troops' sympathy with the strikers. In Harrisburg, Morristown, and Altoona, Pennsylvania, the militia surrendered. Half of the soldiers in the Maryland 6th Regiment broke into an undisciplined retreat during a Baltimore street fight. 
and in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, a company of militia mutinied. In the end, a combination of attrition, fatigue, and military force won out over the striking workers. But still, the authorities were very disappointed. They immediately set about building the militias into well-disciplined machines capable of quelling riots or, more to the point, breaking up strikes. During this period, the state militias were reconstituted into the modern National Guard. Military training was imposed and matters of discipline rigidly enforced, including inspections by regular army officers. In addition, more emphasis was placed on recruitment and armories were built throughout the North. These changes in the organization, training, discipline, and culture of the Guard were accompanied by new articulations of crowd control strategies. A number of manuals suddenly appeared, spelling out the strategy for stifling unrest. These books were generally unconcerned with the social causes of disorder, content to blame them on agitators of various sorts. Most continued to advocate the principle of maximum force. They predicted increased militancy among workers, and offered increased state violence as the remedy. E. L. Molyneux, the commander of the New York National Guard, wrote, quote, In its incipient stage, a riot can readily be quelled, if met bodily and resisted at once with energy and determination. Danger lurks in delay, unquote. A milder version of the doctrine did emerge and gained popularity among local commanders. According to this show of force, my term, theory, quote, Strikers and riots were outbursts that could be controlled, perhaps even prevented by shows of authority which even rowdy workers were pre presumed to respect, or by shows of force which workers would fear. From these premises, it followed that the function of the militia on riot duty was as much demonstrative, even theatrical, as it was coercive. The goal was to disperse rioters, not, as General Vodges would have it, to corner them and wipe them out." Unquote. And if this could be accomplished without firing a shot, so much the better. One manual stated, quote, A strong display of well-disciplined and skillfully handled force will in most instances be sufficient in itself to suppress a riot, unquote. This presumption was later shown to be false. A large police presence is not so much preventive as it is provocative. Such errors were at least partly a product of the theory's underlying premise that rioters are psychologically deranged rather than politically or economically motivated. In any case, the practical consequence of the show of force theory was a new demand for dress uniforms, public drilling, and parades. It was not shown to reduce the likelihood of class conflict or to prevent strikes. In the 1880s, a wave of immigration made the authorities less reluctant to use force against striking workers, and after the Haymarket incident of 1886, the show of force approach was almost entirely abandoned in favor of more direct responses. Quote, Tacticians came to favor the use of force over the show of force. Unquote. Tellingly, racist comparisons between workers and Native Americans became more common. In 1892, the Army and Navy Register opined, quote, The Red Savage is pretty well subdued, but there are white savages growing more numerous and dangerous as our great cities become greater, unquote. This analogy was not merely rhetorical. Many of the same units were used against strikers as against indigenous peoples. The maximum force approach did have its disadvantages, quote, Fire tactics appropriate for conventional warfare jeopardized innocent lives, invited public condemnation, and simply did not work in the urban terrain where most riots took place." Unquote. As the National Guard's reputation for brutality grew, so did sympathy for those who opposed them, especially striking workers. At the same time, maximum force was out of step with the authorities' overall strategy in handling strikers. As the government and businesses came to rely more and more on the pacifying effects of concessions, Nevertheless, and despite atrocities like the Ludlow Massacre, 
maximum force remained the dominant approach well into the 20th century. Rationalizing force. It was not until World War I and its accompanying Red Scare that the maximum force doctrine was revised. State violence was then rationalized, broken into discrete ordered stages. This change represented one component in an early effort to take some of the conflict out of class conflict. Quote, in short, repealing bellicose post-Haymarket formulas for riot control was part of a multifaceted drive to wreck the left, strip the working class of radical leaders, and put progressive managers in their place. Unquote. Of the new crowd control strategists, the most influential was Henry A. Bellows, an officer in the Minnesota Home Guard and the author of A Manual for Local Defense, 1919, and A Treatise on Riot Duty for the National Guard, 1920. In these works, he drew a distinction between crowds and mobs, and argued that the key was to keep a crowd from becoming a mob. Ideally, this could be accomplished by preventing crowds from forming in the first place, or failing that, by breaking up any crowd that did form, and doing so before it had the chance to transform into a mob. The crowd should be dispersed with as little actual violence as possible, but without hesitating to use whatever force was necessary. Bellows wrote, quote, Practically every riot can be prevented without bloodshed if sufficient force can be brought to bear on it in time. Unquote. Army Major Richard Stockton and New Jersey National Guard Captain Saskett Dixon expressed a similar view in their Troops on Riot Duty, a manual for the use of armed forces of the United States. They wrote, quote, Troops on riot duty should keep in mind the fact that they are called upon to put down disorder absolutely and promptly, with as little force as possible, but it should be remembered also that the majority of cases the way to accomplish these ends is to use at once every particle of force necessary to stop all disorder." Unquote. The new theorists sought a doctrine by which force would be prescribed in proportion to the difficulty of dispersing the crowd. They thus activated using tactics suited to their particular situation. Quote, in terms of tactics, giving priority to prevention demanded what latter military thinkers would call doctrines of sequence of force or flexible response. Simply put, the idea was to adapt levels of forces sick, to levels of perceived menace, escalating the, to firepower only as a last resort. All of the writers of the 1918 to 1920 endorsed the initial use of verbal warnings, bayonets, rifle butts, or horses as alternatives to firepower. Unquote. By 1940, the show of force doctrine had been reinserted as the first step of this progression. In this way, the doctrine of maximum force was transformed into that of escalated force, which remained the standard approach to crowd control until the 1970s. Quote, as its name indicates, the escalated force style of protest pol policing was characterized by the use of force as a standard way of dealing with demonstrations. Police confronted demonstrators with a dramatic show of force and followed with a progressively escalated use of force if demonstrators failed to abide by police instructions to limit or stop their activities." Unquote. And it's got a little table here showing one police presence, two display of power, three commands, four arrests, five batons, six less lethal munitions, and seven firearms. Such force took different forms. Sometimes arrests immediately followed even minor violations of the law or were used to target and remove agitators, whether or not a law had been broken. Other times, police used force instead of making arrests, either to break up the crowd or to punish those who disobeyed them. The Applications and Implications of Escalated Force According to the escalated force theory, violence is only used in proportion to the threat posed by the crowd. The reality is often quite different. 
the police response to protests is determined by something more than the behavior of the protesters. In fact, the actions of the crowd may not even be the most important factor. Others may include police preparedness and discipline, the presence of counter-demonstrators, the numbers of participants, media coverage, and the political calculus surrounding the event, that is, what people with power, and the police leaders in particular, stand to gain or lose by attacking the event or letting it alone. These factors can be classed into six groups. 1. The organizational features of the police. 2. The configuration of political power. 3. Public opinion. 4. The occupational culture of the police. 5. The interaction between police and protesters, and 6. Police knowledge. Even when the police do respond in proportion to the threat, their victims often include peaceable demonstrators and innocent bystanders along with hooligans. Widespread violence is by its nature imprecise, and questions of guilt or innocence like those pertaining to constitutional rights are of secondary concern if indeed they are considered relevant at all. Dispersal operations are not designed to uphold the law or to protect public safety. Often, the police action itself will represent the most serious violation of the law and constitute the greatest threat to the safety of the community. Instead of the law of public safety, the police are concerned with establishing control, maintaining power. Quote, Well-known demonstrations in which police used the escalated force approach include those in the Birmingham Civil Rights Campaign, May 1963, the 1968 Chicago Democratic National Convention, and the confrontation between student protesters and the National Guard soldiers at Kent State University, May 1970. During each of these demonstrations, police or soldiers used force in an attempt to disperse demonstrators, even demonstrators who were peacefully attempting to exercise their First Amendment rights, as the vast majority of them were." Unquote. These events, while large in scope, and attracting a great deal of media attention were not uncharacteristic of escalated force operations. In many ways, they were sadly typical. While Kent State, where the victims were white, has come to symbolize the murder of student protesters, it was not the first or last time that students were shot in the name of keeping order. In May 1967, three years before Kent State, a black student was killed at Jackson State College in Mississippi. In February 1968, three students were killed at South Carolina State College, one was killed in Berkeley in May 69, and another at North Carolina Agriculture and, and Mechanical College that same month. One was killed in Santa Barbara in February 1970. In March 1970, 12 were shot, but no one killed at State University of New York, Buffalo. Most famously, in May 1970, four were murdered at Kent State. That same month, 20 were shot just down the road at Ohio State, all survived, and 14 were shot again at Jackson State, two of whom died. In July 1970, one was killed at the University of Kansas, Lawrence, and another at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Two years later, in November 1972, two more students were killed at the University of New Orleans. Predictably, urban black people received even worse treatment. In the Detroit Uprising of 1967, 43 people were killed, 36 of whom were black. 29 of these deaths were definitely attributable to police, National Guard troops, or the Army. The remaining 13 died from any of a variety of causes. Some were shot by store owners, some died in fires, two were electrocuted by fallen power lines. No deaths were directly attributable to the violence of the crowds. Despite the rhetoric surrounding them, black uprisings in the 60s, quote, were marked by a relative absence of violence committed by rioters against people. Careful examination of the causality list shows that police and military inflicted the vast majority of fatalities and injuries on blacks in the riot area, unquote. And that's the end of the first part of chapter 8.